Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, gang. Welcome back to Welfare, the running podcast with me, Amy Lane. Over the past three seasons, we've explored many aspects of running, from how to fuel our bodies to the essential strength work to make us all tough enough to withstand hours of pounding the pavements or trails. There's been a big focus on what we can do to get more from our miles and achieve those goals set out by our training plans. But sometimes, even though running is a brilliant form of exercise, it can actually harm rather than help our health. In the past few years, elite runners such as Mary Kane and Hannah Fields have bravely shared their story of battling eating disorders while at the top of their game. They've spoken about the pressures to get thinner and leaner in order to get faster and how that affects their mental and physical health. And they're not the only ones. Beat, the UK's eating disorder charity, estimates that 1.2 million people in the UK have an eating disorder and women make up 75% of this group. And in today's episode, I share how I became part of that statistic. I also discussed the seriousness of eating disorders whilst respecting the sensitivity of this topic with Dr. Bryony Bamford, a consultant clinical psychologist who has been working with eating disorders for over 15 years. So I have to point out that some of what I say or maybe what she says could be triggering for those of you listening in. But I hope that through this episode, you'll realise that you're not alone and there is help out there. I will link to all of the resources in the show notes. And actually, talking about the difficulty of this episode, I have to be truthful in saying that it's a really tough one for me to record for so many reasons. And in fact, I nearly scrapped it from the content plan a few times, but I realised that I needed to record it. Because if me, a confident woman with an honest and open platform, couldn't talk about running purely to burn calories, running to justify what I ate, or being locked in a cycle of excessive exercise with binging and purging, then perhaps I'm contributing to the stigma surrounding eating disorders and disordered eating. So today, I'm going to broach that complicated and sensitive topic with the hope that we can all understand these mental illnesses that bit more, both for our own health and for the health of those around us. Plus, I want to ensure that we're encouraging the next gen of runners, girls, and ultimately women to have a healthy relationship with food and exercise. Normally, you'll know that I'll go into the news you can use this week, but instead I'm not going to do that. I'm going to read an exclusive excerpt from my new book, I Can Run, that talks about my story and my journey with food. The relationship between food and body image is complicated. In comparison, 
the relationship between food and fitness is refreshingly simple. Having finally wrapped my head around this, I'm faster, healthier and a hell of a lot happier than I've ever been before. But that wasn't always the case. I can still taste the first time that food became a source of torment, not nourishment. I was three years old and my sister had had enough of my constant bullying. She bit back and chased me around the house until she caught me and force-fed me a segment of orange. I desperately tried to spit it out while gagging on the awful, pithy, stringy stuff. When the citrusy waterboarding was over, I didn't just cry, I screamed the house down. To some, especially my sister, it was an overreaction. But three-year-old me didn't see it like that. Back then, I didn't just dislike fruit, I was terrified of it. The wet and juicy textures and sickly smells made my skin cruel and just touching it would send me into a meltdown. As a baby, I once made you eat mashed banana, my mum later told me, but it was the first and last time. Shortly after I'd shoved in the last mouthful, you violently sicked up the lot. A few years after Orange Gate, there was another incident. I was at my childminders, happily combing the hair of my troll doll, when one of the other kids decided it would be funny to smarm tomato pips from his plate onto my arm. Well, more fool him. For the next two hours, I howled and howled because a tomato had touched me. I can't remember what made me finally stop crying. Exhaustion, perhaps. But I know we were never served cherry tomatoes for lunch again. My dramatic reaction towards fruit and mostly vegetables or disgust reflex, as experts call it, lasted well into my teens. I can recall plenty of mealtimes spent trying to peel boiled new potatoes at the dinner table because my mother refused to comply with my no-skin-on-food rule. My sister thought I was a brat, while my mum, exhausted as most single parents are, just let it pass. Either way, my fear of and consequent refusal to eat vegetables made mealtimes a testing experience for everyone around me. It wasn't until I was nearly 16 that I finally stopped freaking out about skins, pips and stringy bits. Actually, that's not strictly true, as there are still foods today that I won't touch, like cucumber or melon. Just the smell of them makes me wretch. But thankfully for my husband and fellow diners, I no longer turn hysterical should I mistake cucumber for courgette, and I'll happily unwrap parma ham from a melon before shoving it in my mouth. But back then as a teen... My diet of meat and potatoes became meat, potatoes and green beans. From there, I got really adventurous. I even branched out to a vegetable stir fry. Once the bean sprouts, water chestnuts and bamboo shoots had been removed, obviously. It was slow progress, but progress nonetheless. Then at 20, after a bad breakup, that progress faltered. I moved cities, went into reverse and my disordered eating came back with a vengeance. My body confidence began to crumble. It started small, like a few Rice Krispies falling from the side of a crackle cake. But after one term at a new college, those small crumbs turned into big chunks and I fell apart. For the first time in my life, I fell victim to the negative self-talk that I now know affects so many people. This critical commentary about how I looked followed me everywhere. I spent every waking moment hyper aware of my appearance and what I could do to edit it. Before then, 
I'd barely contemplated that what you put into your body affects the way it looks and how it operates. I was late to puberty, which meant I'd stayed quite small and slight through my teens. As such, I never had to deal with the awkward emergence of bouncy boobs replacing my childish chest. I ate chocolate-covered everything and it never showed. I could binge on whatever I liked and still fit into my Kappa Popper tracksuit and spaghetti string vest. So at 20, when I decided to attempt to eat better to look better, I finally learned that five slices of half-and-half bread slathered with jam didn't constitute a balanced diet. I didn't realise I was running headfirst into my next episode of Food Chaos. Paradoxically, my problems all started with a commitment to what I thought was healthy eating. I looked for lower calorie foods and menu options that were light in fat. I ordered my burgers bunless and on nights out, I would drink a skinny bitch. That's vodka, soda and lime. This progressed to buying books, including the South Beach Diet, that promoted cutting out carbs to elicit rapid weight loss. It also promised increased heart health, but let's be honest. That wasn't top of my agenda. Numbers 1 through 10 on my agenda at that time were getting lean AF. I devoured the headlines that vilified carbs and really did believe that breaking up with bread was the shortcut to slim. The problem was, once I began scrutinising my food and its nutritional makeup, I couldn't stop. Rather than seeing the benefits of ingredients, I'd obsess over the sugar and fat content. It wasn't long before my carb-free diet became my dairy-free, low-fat, low-sugar diet too. The scariest thing is that no one around me battered an eyelid. Eating clean was cool. While some people could deploy these diets in a more measured way, I couldn't. My healthy eating became extreme, and for the next 10 years, I would suffer through a psychological eating disorder. Writing those words still makes me wince, shudder, and, in truth, look away in denial. Jordan Younger, aka The Balanced Blonde, once said, No one plans to develop an eating disorder, and I think she's right. But life doesn't always go to plan. According to Beat Eating Disorders, more than 1.25 million people in the UK have an eating disorder. And as I've mentioned before, 75% of those are female. However, the early warning signs of this illness often go unnoticed. For years, I ignored the signs. Despite knowing that eating multiple bowls of granola and then purging them all back up again wasn't normal, it became my normal. I'd regularly go to the gym fasted and I'd work out until I could burpee no more. Back at home, I'd then binge on packets of cookies and family-sized chocolate bars. Once full, I'd head to the toilet and throw it all back up again. I was one of the many adults who was simply unable to process the signs of an eating disorder. Shockingly, the average delay is three and a half years between falling ill and recognising that you have a problem. Spotting an eating disorder early on is rare. Out of the 2,000 adults surveyed by BEAT, nearly 80% were not able to name a psychological symptom. And yet, physical signs of eating disorders are often the last symptoms to show, happening once the mental illness is ingrained. It's why many of you, I'm sure, can understand why I couldn't see that being sick after binging on food was problematic. Well, that's because by then it was already too late. I'd been wrestling with these issues in my mind for years and lost. 
By the time I looked up from having my head in the toilet bowl, I couldn't help it. To be honest, one of the only reasons I finally faced up to my issues and confided in a close family member was because I got caught out. We were on holiday in Ibiza and I'd been spotted going to the toilet for a third time during dinner. I had a choice. I either admit the truth or lie and have my family believe that I had a class A drug problem. I chose to break my silence on bulimia. Understanding eating disorders, if you've never suffered from one, can be baffling. Comprehending why anyone would go that far isn't easy. The only way I know to explain it is that, yes, I knew it was bad. But what was bigger than the fear I felt for the damage I was doing to my body was the disgust I felt looking at myself in the mirror. I no longer saw my true self. Instead, all I saw was my body in visceral detail and my mind was whirring one step ahead and already plotting how it was going to shave off inches from my thighs and arms and telling me what I could and couldn't eat for the next 48 hours. It did this because at some point my brain had linked food and self-worth and it's the same for millions of other people. This is made even more distressing when you consider the UK's troubled relationship with body confidence. Only 6% of the women surveyed by Women's Health said they had high body confidence while the Dove Choose Beautiful survey found that only 4% of women feel beautiful. It's this fragility that makes us so susceptible to destructive relationships with food. The distaste for the skin we're in is contributing to a rise in eating disorders. Shockingly, in the past decade, the number of patients admitted to hospital suffering from these illnesses has doubled. After my admission in Ibiza, I thought life would get better. I thought that by saying the words, I would magically become fixed. I believed I would be too ashamed to puke up my food again, and I would finally recognise the severity of the situation. I wasn't, and I didn't. Even when later that year, I confided in two friends, thinking that extra eyes on me would help me break my binge purge eating patterns, nothing changed. For months, I continued on with this behaviour, spending unnecessary money on food, I squandered my weekly budget on snacks and then watched as they, along with my self-worth, were flushed down the drain. There were times when I managed to break the cycle and I'd go weeks or months without doing myself harm and I thought I was recovered. But then when I experienced change, stress or disappointment, the disorder worked itself back into my life. Throughout all of this, there were more problems lurking in the background. When I wasn't gorging on granola or processed snacks, I masked my disordered eating tendencies by subscribing to the latest New Age food cult to hit the internet. I tell everyone this new way of eating was the route to better health, increased energy and glowing skin. Not that I really gave a shit about that part. I was on a mission to get thin. Because when I looked in the mirror, I didn't see the abs so many people often reference. A genetic perk that I get from my mum. Thanks mum. But I saw the small pockets of fat that squished between my bra strap and armpit. I didn't see the strong legs that had carried me over a half marathon finish line, but the lack of a thigh gap and cellulite on my bum. I was deluded by what a healthy body should look like and so snacked on quick fix advice to iron out my self-perceived flaws. That's why in 2016, I found myself with a mouth that stank like nail polish remover, headaches so painful I had to call in sick to work and constipation so chronic that I was concerned that my faeces would eventually force their way out of the opposite end. 
I'm actually talking about the time that I went keto. It was hellish. For two weeks, I stuck to the extremely low carb food plan in order to force my body to burn fat, not carbohydrates. As I weighed everything I ate to ensure I consumed no more than 20 grams of carbs a day, I would remember my PT at the time and his roster of clients. His Instagram was full of bikini models who were so lean that a strong wind could blow them over. They looked superhuman, like flesh-covered avatars. There wasn't an ounce of excess flesh. And if the skinny bitch collective could do it, then why couldn't I? Well, apart from the side effects I've already referred to, not to mention urine that you could smell two metres away from the toilet, it only increased my avoidance of more food groups. Plus, there's a major flaw in this food plan. You can't pause keto. If, like me, you eat this way for two weeks and then give up because the temptation of pizza is too strong, when you next step on the scales a few days later, you'll most likely register the same weight as you did before going keto. Naturally, this ended in a heavy dose of self-criticism and trash talk, which inevitably propelled me into the arms of yet another self-prescribed weight loss plan. What I wish I'd known before going keto is that the initial weight loss seen on the scales by going low carb is not fat melting away, but the body ridding itself of excess water. So when you reverse your diet, your body restocks its empty reserves, and this once again shows up on the scales. Simply put, I never did lose fat, just water. Not long after the keto catastrophe, I tried the raw vegan diet. While some people eat like this for ethical or environmental reasons, I, of course, ate nothing but raw vegetables to get lean. I chased the notion that if I got back down to 53 kilos, the lightest I've ever been as an adult, everything would be golden. So I set about filling my fridge and cupboards with nothing but vegetables, legumes, nuts, seeds and cold pressed oils. For the first 48 hours, I really enjoyed eating raw. I spiralised courgettes and made cashew pesto. I blended cauliflower and made a raw pizza. I even made raw carrot cake ice cream. It was working until a few days of juicing, blending, soaking, sprouting and dehydrating blew up in my face, literally. I had such bad gas and bloating that the only way to relieve the pressure was to go to the disabled toilet at work and get myself into a downward dog. I spent 20 minutes burping and farting while at the same time contemplating how many toilet germs I was inhaling by having my nose so close to the bathroom floor. After that day, I threw out the spiralizer and Jason's Veil juice book and instead vowed to leave my raw veganism to Miranda Kerr and co. It would be a few more years until I truly understood the benefits of a balanced diet. I was still indoctrinated into the school of carbs make you fat and was suffering as a result. On reflection, the fact that I once weighed broccoli to log its carb content on my fitness pal was a sign that all was not well. All the while I was still exercising hard and running loads and wondering why I had such sore muscles, felt fatigued and was so damn hungry. And then after a night out, this intense need for food came back to bite me. I'd been out with friends in London and stumbled in some time after midnight. I just about managed to smear some face cleanser over my skin before passing out in my room. I'm not quite sure what happened between that moment and coming around in the kitchen, but all I know today is that somehow I'd managed to sleepwalk to the fridge, totally naked. The reason I know this is because, upon hearing weird scrabbling sounds in the kitchen, my best friend's boyfriend, my landlord, 
clambered out of bed to check it out. He was confronted with me, stark, no bollock naked, hacking away at an unripe avocado. I'd obviously decided in my drunk, hungry sleep that I needed food and beelined for the fridge. To this day, we've laughed about it, but I'm always quick to move the conversation on because, number one, who wants to revisit the story of their best mate's boyfriend seeing their fanny? And number two, the fact that drunken me chose an avocado as a snack is so cringingly wellness. Thankfully, not long after the night of the avocado fanny, a new breed of nutrition advice landed. For once, the new recipe books and diet manuals weren't campaigning for more kale and turmeric, but instead championed the merits of carbohydrates for weight loss. Bob Harper, celebrity trainer and the guy from America's Biggest Loser, published The Super Carb Diet. In it, he explains how going from a paleo diet to a carb-rich meal plan can help prevent constant food cravings and feelings of deprivation. This was also around the time that Joe Wicks started to bust the myth that eating carbs after 6pm will make you fat. Further research by Stanford Prevention Research Centre in California agreed with Harper and Wicks. A low-carb diet is no better for lifelong weight loss than a low-fat diet. The key is quality food. Inspired and intrigued by the new nutrition ideology, I chewed over the science. It turns out that after intense exercise, the body's biggest concern is replacing energy stores, glycogen. Sure, it needs protein to repair muscles, but if you don't restock your muscles with its favoured form of energy, then chances are your next workout will feel harder. Ideally, you'd eat a 3 to 1 ratio of carbohydrates to protein after a workout. I hadn't been doing this. I'd removed oats, bananas and other forms of carbs from my post-workout shakes and instead chugged only protein powder and water. Without knowing it, I'd actually cut the food group that my body so desperately needed for intense exercise and my Apple Watch recorded the results. My split times got slower, not faster. I'd unwittingly given myself a nutritional handicap. Clearing up my confusion on carbs was a bit of a holy shit moment. For years, I'd been led to believe they were bad. However, by understanding their function in a balanced diet, I was able to stop seeing them as a foe, but a friend to my running. And when I started marathon training, I truly understood their importance in fueling success. Now, I'm not crediting running with curing my disordered eating habits, though I can happily report that my relationship with food has been far happier for around three years now. But I am saying that I came from a situation from where I was battling through the confusion of conflating food and body image. Arming myself with the real nutritional knowledge that comes with fueling fitness has helped no end. Today, I don't put a label on my diet or subscribe to a plan. I eat mindfully, thinking about what fuel my body needs to carry out the tasks I ask of it. I believe there's a time and a place for all foods. You just need to know why. But also, eating disorders are complicated and they're a serious subject. And so, whilst I have shared my story and I hope that at times you have laughed, I hope that also you've seen that it is a serious journey that a lot of women go through. Wellfar is in partnership with Yo Valley, who are based in Somerset and make products with all the goodness of organic British milk. Their kefir has got loads of active lactic cultures in there for maximum gut flora diversity. It's tangy, creamy taste, makes it perfect to add to your morning porridge. 
full of calcium and phosphorus. It can help support injury prevention and is available in natural, mango and passion fruit, blueberry and strawberry flavours. At only £1.50 for a 350 gram pot, you can find it in selected Tesco's, Sainsbury's, Waitrose or Morrison stores, as well as on Ocado. 150 gram single serve pots are also available. You can pick these up in Sainsbury's and Co-op. Now that we all know about kefir, let's get back on with today's show. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to my personal story. It was quite a hard one to record and to share, but I'm so glad I did it. Now it's time to head into the virtual studio with Dr. Bryony Bamford. Just a quick reminder, though, that both Bryony and I are recording remotely. So if the sound isn't quite the same as what you're used to from my earlier seasons in the studio, this is why. Plus, if you hear a small child, the doorbell, a rubbish truck or any other household sound like a washing machine or something, then I do apologise. But it is all part and parcel of lockdown chaos and bringing new shows during that time. As mentioned, Brownie has been working with eating disorders for over 15 years and is the co-author on the book Bulimia, Binge Eating and Their Treatment and has contributed to a second book, Managing Severe and Enduring Anorexia, A Clinician's Guide. I couldn't think of somebody better placed to talk to on how we can spot, how we can deal and how we can recover from eating disorders and disordered eating. Welcome to the Welfare Studio, Bryony. Hi there. Thank you very much for having me. Great to be remotely with you. Yes. I mean, you're recording from home, aren't you, amongst trying to do your work? And I know you've got two small children. Yes, yes. It's a an interesting juggle, I must say. <laughs> I'm actually really interested to know before we get into today's show. Obviously, your background lends itself to spotting ill mental health and knowing how to deal with it. How have you how have you kept good mental health during lockdown? Because it, it's tough, isn't it, right now? It's really tough. It's really tough. Yes. And and interestingly, I think in my own personal experience and through chatting with friends and and the clients that I have, it seems that some people are really taking to it. And actually, if anything, a slightly slower pace of life is a little easier, if anything. And for others, just the isolation and the change in structure and the juggle is so incredibly hard. And 
you know, I think it's important to recognize that we're not meant to be swanning through this easily. This is a really, really challenging time for for most people and, and finding ways of looking after ourselves, new ways of looking after ourselves. is It, it is a challenge, but it's incredibly important to, to be doing that at the moment. I'm, I'm lucky in that I sort of, I have a, a slightly different role, I guess, on day to day. So some days I'm a mum, some days I'm trying to homeschool, some days I'm trying to to work and, and support my team and, and my clients. And though it's a juggle and it's exhausting and I am exhausted, it also means that at least days look a little bit different from each other. And I think that's really helpful for me. I think that's one of the things that I've really struggled with, actually, is just that I was so used to change in my day, um, very much in my day job. I, I don't know what's going to be thrown at me. And whilst sometimes that can totally throw me, I'm quite resilient to it. And I and I thrive on bouncing about doing different meetings and doing all these things. And then suddenly my life is either in one room or just one level of my house. Yeah. And so that's been quite tough. Yeah, it's really tough. It's really tough. I think we have to remember that, it, you know, it's not forever. And there's a really important reason why we're doing it. And we're not meant to be enjoying it. And when all this is over, and we and we do look back, you know, it, it's okay if we haven't enjoyed this time of our, of our lives, hopefully, we'll be able to take something from it in the in the long run. But yes, it's a it's a huge challenge for the vast majority of people. That's a nice segue because one of the things that you've just mentioned is that things aren't forever and that we can move on from situations, which leads me nicely into today's show, um, (laughs) talking about eating disorders and disordered eating, um, notably in the running community. Yes. Before we really get into that conversation, can you just help me understand and explain to our listeners what the difference is between eating disorders and disordered eating? It's a complex question to, to, to describe. I guess an eating disorder implies that you meet certain diagnostic criteria. And we primarily use the DSM manual or the ICD manual, both of which sort of set out, if you like, diagnostic criteria for different psychological conditions. So an eating disorder will meet certain criteria. We see a lot of people who do have disordered eating, but perhaps they don't quite meet those criteria. So they don't feel comfortable eating flexibly, eating regularly. They don't feel, they feel distress in their relationship with food or in their relationship with their body. Um, but I guess it's about sort of levels, if you like, of of extremity in behaviours and in emotional distress. And disordered eating implies you're certainly at risk of meeting diagnostic criteria for an eating disorder, but perhaps you don't at that time. In my experience, when I was suffered with, so I was never clinically diagnosed, and I almost just because I just felt too embarrassed to come out and say it to a doctor, even though I was I was under care for so many different other reasons, which were which were symptoms of my disordered eating. But one of the things which I didn't realise until I suppose it was too late was maybe like the early warning signs 
of suffering from an eating disorder and disordered eating. A lot of people often think that I think that it has to be that you're throwing up or you're not eating. But are there any other common early warning signs that we can look out for? So I guess where a lot of eating disorders start and something that's common across almost all eating disorders is is what we describe as an over-evaluation of shape and weight. What that means is that somebody really values their shape, really values their weight to a point where it is central, if you like, to their self-esteem, to their their sense of self worth. So whereas somebody without an eating disorder might, they may value their appearance, but they will also value their their role as a as a friend, as a sister, as a daughter, as a mom, their their career. They will get their self-esteem from lots of different aspects of themselves. In eating disorders you see people place huge importance on their shape, on on their weight. And that's really one of the central difficulties, if you like, in an eating disorder. And from that, of course, therefore stems behaviours to attempt to control shape and weight. And they can they can look like all you know, all manner of different behaviours. So restrictive eating, binging, so eating what we would describe as or either eating what we describe as a, an unusually large amount of food within a discrete period of time, or just a sense of loss of control over eating, that you don't have the ability to control or to stop what you're eating. And then we also talk about compensatory behaviours, running being one of those compensatory behaviours. And that will include things like making yourself sick, taking taking laxatives, etc. So yes, as soon as those those sorts of behaviours creep in, you know that you're likely to have a difficulty. But I think those early warning signs are often when people start to overly value shape and weight in themselves. It's a hard one to realise, isn't it? Because I think that from speaking to other people that have suffered and from just asking my community, have you experienced disordered eating or eating disorders? And they often said yes. And they said that it's really hard to draw the line between taking up something like running or another fitness habit to help you have potentially a healthier weight or see yourself in more of a positive light. But then you take it that step too far. Yes. And you're exactly right. It is a really fine line. It's a hard line to to determine. And that's a reality. I think what we look out for, the warning signs that we look out for, are when a behavior becomes compulsive or obsessive. Mm. So the idea of not doing that behavior becomes really distressing. And we talk about sort of phobic levels of distress that you would prioritize that behavior if you like over over your over your health so if you're feeling unwell it would still wouldn't feel acceptable not to use that behavior if a friend asked you to do something if you had a deadline at work you know you would you would be prioritizing that behavior over all other demands because the idea of not in this instance running for example would be so distressing and would have feared consequences. I think that's important too. So the sense that if you don't run, either that that will have an immediate impact on shape or weight, 
or that that will have an impact on how you see yourself or how you're seen by others. So a lot of people talk about a real sense of failure of not being good enough if they don't if they don't stick with the behaviors that they that have become so rigid for them. I remember being right in the eye of the storm and because of the the knock-on effects of of what I was doing to my body I I wasn't sleeping properly at all and I'd, I'd wake up a couple of times a night but yeah I would still drag myself out of bed really early doors just in order to make sure that I got some exercise in because I, I just couldn't fathom having a day without burning calories. And I, I, it wasn't a case of that at the time I was, I was going out and enjoying what I was doing. It was purely that mindset of, I need to burn some calories today because if I don't, then I'm not going to maintain what I look like or actually get thinner because a lot of the time I was just on this constant journey to be thinner, leaner, smaller. Exactly, exactly. And of course, you know, rationally, we know that that, that one day off running is going to have absolutely no impact on on shape or weight and certainly no impact on sort of who you are as a, as a person. You know, f- that a lot of people will describe seeing themselves as a failure, because they have failed to meet that that goal for that day. So at that point, people aren't enjoying what they're doing. You know, they're not doing it for healthy reasons. They're doing it for driven, compulsive reasons. And that's really when you cross that line into it becoming a problem. One of the things which I, I realised when I I finally admitted to myself and, and to others around me that I was struggling was that actually women like myself who are suffering in their late 20s and 30s aren't so much of the anomaly. So I started doing some research and I found that one in more than one in 10 middle-aged women actually experience some form of disordered eating in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. Whereas before I didn't realise that stat would actually be that big because I thought it was just something that teenage girls suffered from. Certainly it's it's not. And I and I think you wouldn't be alone in that misperception. I think that's a very common misperception. In reality, we know firstly that it's not only girls. There's a lot of boys and men who also really struggle with with eating disorders, with body dysmorphia. And I think as as health professionals working in the field, we've always known that. I think there's a little more recognition now that this isn't a teenage illness, that this is something that affects all ages. Some of those people, of course, will have been ill since being teenagers. So some of those people, it will have taken a really, really long time to acknowledge that difficulty or to seek help for that difficulty. And some of those people will develop eating disorders slightly later on in life. Because can you have a normal relationship with food for, say, you're in your 30s now, and so Mm. for like 20 odd years, you have a completely normal relationship with food, and then just out of nowhere, suddenly you do develop this unhealthy relationship with food and start suffering from a mental illness? You can. Yes, you can. I would say it's less common. Most people we see presenting at slightly later stages of life can trace their difficulties back to a young age. And I think it's important to remember that eating disorders are emotional disorders. They're not they're not simply food disorders. And there's a huge amount of pressure, I think, on 
women, especially in their in their thirties these days. And sometimes it, you know, it sort of comes together, if you like, at a certain life point where it becomes intolerable. And for whatever reason, and there will there will never be one reason, there will always be a multitude of reasons. People start to use food to cope with with those emotional difficulties at that point, having not used food previously. Is that maybe why they're quite hard to recognise and potentially diagnose within yourself before getting help? Because you don't see, you can maybe see the the big problem in your life or you see something in your life being the bigger problem without realising that it's impacting your health in different ways. Mm. I think there's all sorts of reasons why people struggle to, to acknowledge it. I think that often there, and, and I think you mentioned this experience for yourself slightly earlier, but there's a huge amount of shame and embarrassment mm-hmm. often in admitting that you have a difficulty with food. And that may in part be because it's seen as a sort of young teenage disorder. I think that people don't always know what help is available. They don't know if people will understand. And I think you know, the reality is that eating disorders often are difficult to understand and not all GPs that you come across will always understand and and guide people in the right direction. I also think that eating disorders are very different from a lot of other mental health conditions in that they're what we just what we sort of professionals describe as egocentric. What that means is that they are valued by the sufferer so you look at something like depression or anxiety or or OCD and they don't tend to be valued they're not sort of wanted by by the sufferer but eating disorders are different and they are valued they are wanted and one of the things that that can make eating disorders more challenging to to treat is that you've really got to work with someone's level of motivation to recover because of course eating disorders present themselves as providing a solution to the underlying difficulties. So if someone feels as though they're not good enough, as though they aren't likable, then an eating disorder will come along and say, hey, I've got a solution to that. I know how to help you with that. I can make you feel better. And in those very early days of an eating disorder, it often does work. It often does make you feel stronger, more more likable, better in some way. But we know, of course, that that doesn't, that doesn't last and actually the eating disorder adds to rather than provides a solution to the underlying difficulties. But it will take people different lengths of time to get to that point. And having something that you see as a solution to your difficulties that you value, that you want, that you're incredibly fearful of, of living without, it's very, very difficult to make that shift into thinking, actually, this is a problem and I need someone to help me with this. I can totally relate to that. When I was doing some reading up, there's a, there's a pro runner um, called Hannah Fields who I actually interviewed for my book. And I think she so eloquently explained the difficulty that many women face with eating disorders when she said there's a lie that's often whispered by an eating disorder saying you're alone. Why, why is it that, that we feel so alone during those times? I, I think that there's, there's a few reasons for that. I think in part... 
as you know, as we were just discussing, an eating disorder is an emotional disorder, and often people, even if they're not necessarily aware, fully aware of it at the time, will, will go into an eating disorder feeling somewhat alone. So, struggling with low self-esteem, struggling with a sense of failure, struggling with a sense of being unlovable, all of those things will contribute to to someone feeling alone. Now, of course, that's not true for everyone with an eating disorder. And and it's important to make the point that everyone is unique and every eating disorder is unique and people Mm. come to it through through different journeys. But for a lot of people, there will be a either a fear of being alone or a sense of being alone before the eating disorder takes hold. What you then see is that when someone is is in the real grips of an eating disorder, it pushes everything else out. So it pushes friends out, it pushes family out, it pushes social life out. You know, it's incredibly difficult to go and and have have a meal with friends and enjoy yourself if you have an eating disorder sitting on your shoulder. So you tend to see over time that people actually do become more alone because friends don't always know how to support they 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 can get frustrated they can become fed up with with someone who is really struggling with an eating disorder so i think you know i think it both preempts but i think the eating disorder the eating disorder very much maintains that sense of of being alone and is invested in maintaining that sense of being alone because of course an eating disorder is is invested in continuing or maintaining that underlying emotional difficulty because that's sort of that's why it's there if you like you just um mentioned eating out I I remember how t- how tough that was, and I'd scan restaurant menus as soon as I knew where we was going, so I knew what I could order, which was either well, it depends how what mindset I was in, but it was either the least calories, so I'd eat something that I knew that was okay to my mind at the time, or I'd be like, okay, that's fine, I'm just going to eat this, and I'd end up binging, and yeah. then and then being sick. So actually, those social times which should have been the thing which I really needed I should have really have looked forward to having a good time with my friends and as like to counterbalance all of these dark times I was having by myself but actually they just became more stress and in the end I just I almost tried to stop like not put myself in that situation so there would be times when I'd be like actually I'm doing a gym class or I'm going on a run I'll meet you afterwards just to avoid being around that situation with food and that certainly isn't uncommon and and that's you know that's one of the main ways in which in which people continue to feel alone in their eating disorder is that those those times aren't enjoyable anymore so either you do start to avoid them or I think friends also pick up that they're difficult for you so you stop being invited and of course that only serves to fuel that underlying sense of of being whether it being not good enough or or unlikable or alone so it's quite easy I think in that way to see how eating disorders can become more important to an individual how they can become central to someone's identity when there's less and less of a a non-eating disorder identity present and how actually changing them becomes very 
anxiety provoking for, for most people because it's unclear what life will look like without it. Mm. Do you ever talk to clients, friends or family, obviously, with their go ahead about how that they can help in those situations um, and potentially like what to say or what not to say? Or is that not something that happens in clinic? It is. It very much is. And, I, and we get asked that question all the time. And it's it's a difficult question to answer in, in honesty, because there's no one simple piece of guidance or piece of advice that you can give to people that that works for everybody. We encourage people to bring friends or family into sessions. We recognize that it's incredibly difficult to overcome an eating disorder. I think it's one of the hardest things that people have to do. And it's important that they don't do it alone and that they get support. And and that support needs to be more than just their their therapy session or or their weekly psychology session. That support needs to come from those in in their life as well. So we always offer family support sessions alongside someone having individual therapy. I think it's incredibly difficult for people to get it right. You know, actually... A, a parent who doesn't really know or get or understand eating disorders trying to help support their child who at, at times will be hugely distressed by their eating disorder and at times will fight anything in their way to keep their eating disorder it's it's almost impossible to say the right things all the time and actually families need their own support in managing that usually do you find that with families that sometimes they don't recognize that they that people are struggling within within either their family group or their close circle because they're looking out for that sign of of their loved one or their close friend being like a size zero and and all ribby and it's not until you get to that point and some people don't get to that point I mean I didn't that they really open to thinking about and discussing the fact that actually somebody close to them is really suffering yes absolutely I do I think you know anorexia I guess is the most well-known of the eating disorders and that's primarily because it's easy easier to identify because it, it someone's appearance changes but anorexia is actually the least common of all the eating disorders. If you look at bulimia, if you look at binge eating disorder, they are eating disorders of normal weight or overweight people. So they're often hidden disorders. You know, there isn't something to, to, to look at. People don't look any different than perhaps they always did. And it's not always, you know, binging happens generally in secret, purging happens generally in secret. So there aren't obvious signs. And as I mentioned before, when people feel very ashamed, when they feel very embarrassed, when they feel extremely fearful of being without their eating disorder, these aren't things that people usually talk about, especially in the early days. So yes, I think a lot of people will have absolutely no idea that friends and or family members are, are really struggling with what is a very or can be a very severe eating disorder. I mean, I didn't actually speak to any of my family until my book hit the shelves. And then, <laughs> and only then did I actually speak to my mum and, and my sister and say, you know, I know that you've probably been maybe aware and it's, it's something, it's thoughts that you've buried because you just couldn't, 
he couldn't talk about it. And so I think that it was almost like nobody wanted to broach that subject. But it wasn't until the book hit the shelves that I said, actually, you know, this is what happened for a good number of years through my 20s. And it is going to be really tough for you to read. But it's something which I think is really important that I talk about. But in in the throes of it all, there was no way that I think either of them would have come to me to say, you know, what's going on? Are you okay? Because I think they were so worried that maybe it would cause more chaos and drama in our relationships. Yes. Yes. And again, I think that's an incredibly common experience for those that have eating disorders. I think more often than not, friends, family members are more aware than the sufferer hopes or imagines. I think people do pick up on, on more than might be anticipated. But I think they have absolutely no idea how to broach it, what to say. I think exactly as you said, I think they fear the response they fear saying the wrong thing I think often families are in denial they don't want to acknowledge that mm. you know that, that someone that they love is really struggling and that's that's difficult for them yeah one area that I think that people have really not acknowledged the suffering that many people many women especially are going through is in the running community and it took Mary Kane, the pro runner last year, to come out with her story of being told that, you know, she had to be thinner and leaner and and what she went through to get to that point. And obviously there's been many other runners. She's definitely not alone. Mm. Is there a reason why runners are so susceptible to these illnesses and more like day-to-day runners? Because obviously girls at the top of their game, we've heard of like being really pressurized by coaches, but in the normal running community, we, we haven't got that pressure. A lot of it is self-imposed. Yeah. I think it's important to recognise that running isn't a, a, a risk factor for an eating disorder. So there are a lot of people that run regularly, that run for incredibly healthy reasons, for whom running is a really positive, a really important part of their life, and they don't have an eating disorder. And you're not necessarily more at risk of an eating disorder because you're a runner. I think often what will happen is that people start running around the time that their eating disorder is developing or will start running once they have an eating disorder because, of course, running is associated with weight control, with calorie control. So it will often start as another way to to burn calories or to manipulate weight if you like. So often, not always, but often I think that when someone has an eating disorder and they're a runner, the running will have come in after the eating disorder has has started to develop. But I think it's important to recognize that running alone isn't going to cause someone to have an eating disorder, that there has to be a, a sort of an underlying emotional vulnerability to an eating disorder for it to be taken in that way. It's so obvious when you say it in that way, it's something maybe that I hadn't thought of before, because I think so many times in life, we just look at one thing and we go, that's the cause, that's it. And actually, we don't think about, like we mentioned earlier on, that there's actually a lot of stresses or aggravators or something that's going on in your life, which will play into the situation. Yes. Yeah. And that's really important to to acknowledge, I think. It's never one thing. 
there's never one reason why someone will develop an eating disorder. I know that the research is is not sort of comprehensive, but there may be a genetic predisposition to developing an eating disorder. There may be early family contributions to developing an eating disorder. People may be temperamentally more at risk of developing an eating disorder. There'll be all sorts of things throughout their life that add to the vulnerability to to develop an eating disorder. And it certainly won't be that someone starts running and, and the next week they have an eating disorder. It's a much more sort of complex balance than that. Is there any kind of steps or boundaries which we can all put in place um, with running and other forms of exercise just to make sure that we do have a healthy relationship with those activities? One of the most important things is awareness, to, to be to be self-reflective and self-aware and to think about what you're experiencing and, and why. We talked a little earlier about overvaluation of shape and weight, and I think if you start to recognise that running is is driven by a sense of I'm I'm not enough or I'm not good enough if I'm not at a certain weight or hold a certain shape, and and you start to recognise that something is becoming compulsive and not enjoyable anymore, I think that's when you need to try and take steps as early as possible. Because I think that's key is is preventing things before they become too entrenched, too ingrained to try and change what you're doing. And, And I think it's also really important to make sure if you're using running as an emotional coping tool, it's really important to make sure that you're not reliant on one activity or one thing to help you cope with the emotions that you're experiencing day to day. One of the activities which somebody in my community said to me that that they do or that they're really struggling with is the fact that they only want to run on a treadmill because they want to see the calories burnt. I mean, obviously, you can also do that when you've run with um, some kind of tracker but for her that must be her way of um, tracking what she's doing is there a do you have any advice on how to get yourself out of that kind of mindset or vicious circle of only doing exercise for calorie burn it's really difficult because it's quite an individual thing for some people recognizing that it's a problem and recognizing why it's a problem and actually it's it's easiest to almost go cold turkey so you you self-impose a ban on running on treadmills and you find other ways of, of exercising for some people that will be the right strategy for them others will need to do it much much more slowly than that so most people who who describe that sort of experience will have a certain number of calories that they aim for so by varying that and seeing that actually the world doesn't fall apart if you're not meeting that self-imposed goal every day, that weight doesn't change if you're not meeting that self-imposed goal every day. So they sort of need to do it much more slowly and see that those feared consequences that they have aren't there. I guess for others for whom it becomes central to maintenance of their self-esteem it's more about working with 
those underlying difficulties. So helping people to find other ways of enhancing or maintaining their self-esteem alongside gradually reducing the compulsive activity. I can understand that. One other area where these arbitrary numbers or metrics are really big for runners is within virtual running communities or within apps. Mm. Once somebody again sent me in another question saying that they find that these apps really can trigger them or can trigger this unhealthy behaviour, but yet they really want to be part of that community. Is that something that you that you hear people say in clinic as well? And if so, how how can we be part of that community but not fall victim to it almost motivating us more into this kind of excessive exercise territory? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really difficult one. And it, and it sort of extends, I guess, beyond that sense of, for example, a virtual running community. You know, it, using apps, etc. is it's a really difficult one, because of course, there are so many people who use those apps in, in very healthy ways and, and yeah. aren't affected negatively by them. And I certainly wouldn't want to give the impression that they were always unhelpful or unhealthy. But I think in the same way that some people are able to look at social media and distance themselves from it such that it doesn't have an impact, others aren't. And at that point, I think you do need to have a a discussion, a collaborative discussion with people about, is it going to be possible to, to keep this in your life without it being triggering? And the answer isn't always going to be yes. And I think that goes for everything that we've spoken about, isn't it? Is that it's definitely down to the individual when it comes to these situations because eating disorders are serious mental illnesses and I think sometimes we underestimate them and we potentially don't recognize. I I know for many years I just saw my actions, what I was doing as my eating disorder but didn't actually think about the the psychological illness of it. Mm. So thank you so much for joining me today. It feels a bit wrong for me to say that I've really enjoyed our conversation, but mm-hmm. I really have just because I think if if I can now start to have this conversation and start to talk about it a bit more honestly and openly and not kind of shove that in my past because I feel a bit ashamed about it, then I hope others will hopefully do the same or if not talk about it, come and seek help from individuals like yourself. Absolutely. And I and I really value the opportunities to, you know, to speak with people like you and to be invited to to, to take part in these kind of discussions because I think that they are incredibly important in helping people to feel even a little bit understood, helping people to know that there is support, there is help out there and there is an alternative to what they're experiencing. So thank you for inviting me. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important to recognise, actually. So if anyone is listening in and they feel that they they need some support or they've spotted that somebody else needs some support, would you mind just sharing your your best advice on how you can seek that? Yes. There, I mean, there's a few different ways to seek help. Of course, we have fantastic NHS services. We're really lucky, especially across London, to have some some incredible specialist eating disorder services. You do, for most adult services, you do need a, an NHS referral. So you would need to talk to your GP. But we also have fantastic private services. You know, the clinic that I 
run the London Centre will see people of all ages, children, adolescents, adults, and very much work with what what people need at the time that they present. There's also some wonderful charities around. So BEAT is the National Eating Disorders Charity, um, which has a fantastic website and lots of resources on there. And there's also a lot of local charities um, that do offer free support, free guidance, support for sufferers and support from from families. So it's worth going to trusty Google, I guess, and having a look at what's what's available in their area. Or if you feel able to, asking a friend to help you to, to find some specialist support. Thanks so much. Have a nice day. Lovely to speak with you. Thank you. Once again, thank you so much for giving me your attention and listening to my story And then staying with me whilst I talked about all of those really, really hard but important points of eating disorders and disordered eating with Bryony. I also wanted to say a special thank you to the women who reached out to me on Instagram and shared your stories and your concerns so that I could weave them into this episode. As always, please do stay in touch. I try and get through my Instagram DMs as many <laughs> as many times as I can in the week. Um, sometimes I don't always manage it, but I really, really try. So please do stay in touch and please do keep sharing your running journeys using the hashtag welfare. It's not just me that follows it. I think there's so many of you that are following that hashtag and it's amazing to see how you're all managing to navigate lockdown and keep running throughout. And lastly, if you did want to hear more, read more um, from my new book, I Can Run, it is out now. To order the book, the simplest way is to um, either order it from Amazons or Waterstones and get it shipped direct to your house. It's also available as an ebook, so you can read it on your Kindle. Or if you are part of the audio brigade, which you probably are from listening to this podcast, just head over to Audible and bag yourself a copy on there. Thanks, guys. And I will be back next week. Team, thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, please do rate, review and subscribe. It really helps other runners and need us some help find the show and join our community too. Don't forget to use hashtag welfare on all your IG posts because I love seeing them. Thanks very much, guys. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.